0: Since 2015, Pop Health Podcast has brought to you some of the best minds in healthcare, including leaders from government, not-for-profit, and investor-backed powerhouses, as they share successes, failures, and how our audience can move forward in today's constantly evolving healthcare world. Thank you for joining us for today's episode presented by 24-Hour Home Care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. I'm Gavin Ward, co-host of today's episode. And it's great because I actually do have a co-host, it's been a while, and my colleague April Stewart is co-hosting our episode today with Bill Dombey, President of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice. For those of you that are familiar with post-acute care or have been in the industry for a while, you might recognize, recognize... Bill's name. He actually was behind the scenes and helped develop many of the rules that go into home health and hospice today, including helping to build and protect things during the Affordable Care Act's creation in the early 2000s and 2010. We hope you enjoyed today's episode where Bill gives us history of 30 plus years advocating for the home health, hospice, and home care industry, and he's got some good stories along the way as well. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Feel free to check us out on other episodes of Pop Health Podcast by visiting us on our YouTube channel, pophealthpodcast.com, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your shows. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. Bill, thanks so much for joining the show today.
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. April as well. Awesome to have you as a co-host. Welcome.
2: Thanks, Gavin. It's great to be here. I've been a big fan of the show, so it's great to participate today.
0: Awesome. Well, it's great to have you, April. Uh, For those of you that don't know, uh, April and I work together in our day jobs, and you may see April in the future, uh, potentially uh, in some more media, but I'll just leave it at that. No guarantees, no promises, but uh, she's definitely one uh, to keep your eye on. But today we're here to talk with Bill and about Bill as well. So we'd like to start today's show, Bill, by getting to know you a little bit. So can you share something about yourself outside of the workplace, uh, like a fun fact, maybe something that would surprise the audience?
1: Uh, you know, I, I it's come up before, you know, in conversation with friends when they say, you cut your own grass. Yeah, I, I, I mow my own lawn uh, and You know, I get criticized by people saying, what kind of lawyer can you be if you have to cut your own grass? But I I find it something that I can complete and see the end of it uh, while while listening to old 70s music on my uh, headphones. Uh, So it gives me some good relaxation time as well. So, uh, yeah, there are lawyers in Washington who cut their own lawns.
0: That is awesome. Uh, You mentioned 70s music. I guess you're probably not listening to it on a cassette uh, or Walkman, right?
1: Oh, no, I've got, I've got an 8-track portable player that I have left <laughs> over from back then. No, no, I, ha- I have it on my phone uh, with my Bluetooth connection to my wireless headphones. And so I think I've modernized a bit, even if I'd still listen to everything from the Beatles to Led Zeppelin and Cat Stevens and many, many more from that era. Nice. Well, Bill, I think you're that, gonna guess... that dates me age-wise. Uh, I, I could claim to say my parents taught me well, but that's not the case.
2: <laughs> I was going to say you're going to get some Google traction of people looking up what an A-track is after listening <laughs> to this podcast. I, <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and I, I like bringing things up like that, you know, to kind of stump those young people who think they know everything.
2: I love it. Well, perfect. Well, we actually couldn't find much about you online, surprisingly, in this online world today of telehealth um, and putting resumes up and LinkedIn. Can you give us a little bit more background on you, your background, where you grew up, and where you call home today?
1: Well, I grew up in a small town, Connecticut. You know, I'm a, uh, a, a grandchild of immigrants from various parts of. Hungary, Lithuania, and Poland. Uh, my grandparents came over to Ellis Island in the late 1800s and did like many others uh, who came over from Europe at that point, they ended up in a small New England mill town working in factories. Uh, and my parents did the same, uh, maybe with a little bit upgrade in their factory jobs, but still in the factories. A Little small town, 30,000 people. Uh, and you know, it was a, a very diverse, uh a town uh diverse in terms of multiple forms of catholic faith people uh you know it was we had five catholic churches in a town of 30,000 people uh but it was not diverse in, in a normal worldly sense i don't think i met anybody who was uh, of a different race until i was in uh, in high school time Wow, so very unusual uh, upbringing in, in that respect. Not that, it, in some respects, it affected my my upbringing a bit uh, in terms of knowledge, but probably not in terms of the my own cultural views of of how life should go. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it was a good upbringing, uh, and at some point in time you know, uh, I, I realized the main thing my parents were going to give me opportunity-wise was uh, the opportunity for education. Uh, we're the first generation in my, in my family to have gone on uh, to college and even on to graduate degrees as well. So I, I am a creature of that baby boomer era where you saw lots of people uh, like me coming about and hopefully for the better, uh, for, for, for ourselves, but also for, for other people in the community. So Yeah, where I ended up, law school, Uh, you know, but one of the unusual law students, I think, based on my experience, I was not somebody who was just looking to continue on in school because I wasn't ready to go into real life. I really wanted to be a lawyer.
2: And what was your inspiration to really forming that wanting to become a lawyer and wanting to get into healthcare advocacy
1: once you graduated as a lawyer? You know, I, I've thought about that over the years, and maybe it changes over time. But uh, probably the instigating force was, uh, you know, a combination of feeling there were too many underdogs in the world, that you know, needed uh, to deal with the, the second aspect, bullies. Uh, and, uh, and when I think of that, I think of my uh, my honors calculus class professor, who I considered a bully, uh, and decided to. Revolt very quickly in his class uh, to a point of making him quite unhappy. I spent most of my second half of that semester finding all the things he did wrong. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and and from from there, I realized I said, boy, I'd make a good lawyer, uh, finding all the flaws in what people have and prosecuting those along the way. Uh, but you know, it moved quickly from there to back to the underdog status. And during college, I did an internship at a legal services program. Sometimes people call it legal aid. Uh, and some of the most vulnerable people in our society, you know, people who spend half of their lives, you know, getting out of or avoiding evictions, dealing with domestic violence, uh, welfare benefits, uh, dealing with the man, you know, the, the system itself, uh, and found uh that you know, there was great satisfaction in. You know, taking care of Goliath uh, sometimes uh, on behalf of people who weren't equipped to do it on their own. Uh, So that that really just stirred a passion in me uh, to be there to try to help other people in ways that some people couldn't, because there are many ways I couldn't help people otherwise. You know, but that was something I could do. I mean, I work in healthcare, so to speak, but you would never call me a healthcare provider. That's not something I can do.
2: Well, what you do definitely helps providers do their job better it's all part of the ecosystem towards health equity
1: you know and and that's part of what healthcare is all about you know for for the country at large is a team of people with diversified talents some of those people who are those very courageous frontline workers you know in a covid era and otherwise you know caring for individuals you know some people faint at the sight of blood you know uh you know I, i i've seen enough of my own blood not to think I'm gonna faint at the sight of somebody else's, but uh, it it's takes a, a different kind of mindset. But then there are others who do everything from back office work to as many things I do in the advocacy side, whether it's litigation or lobbying to try to create access issues. And uh, all of my work I think fits under the category you know, of patient-centered, beneficiary-centered work, uh, and still the underdog. I mean, think, think, think of representing somebody in a lawsuit in a federal court against the Medicare program. You got the entire Department of Justice against you, uh, and there you are working in, you know, you know, a small law office with limited resources, and. Uh, just arrogance is your primary skill, uh, you know, th- that you can take them on that way. Uh, but you know, the passion is there for the same purpose that direct healthcare providers are doing, trying to help patients get good quality care.
0: Okay, so I have to I have to jump in here. I'm writing this down. Arrogance is your primary skill, was it? That's your weapon
1: <laughs> against the big uh, Goliaths. <laughs> yes, so, some may call it a comorbidity. I'll call it a skill for <laughs> purpose of this conversation. Awesome.
2: There's definitely something to be said for grit when it comes to going up against, you know, the system and fighting for equity and the underdog, as you put it. I love that.
1: So that know, a, and, and, and like, inspiration was, you know, during the during the '70s, uh, you know, people like Justice Douglas on the Supreme Court you know, and really fighting for, for, for people rights uh, throughout the, you know, his tenure on the court, very inspirational uh, Thurgood Marshall and many other Supreme Court justices indicating that you could actually use the law, you know, to help change and improve society. Uh, law provides structure, but laws can be changed too. Uh, and those, those, that structure should be there to benefit people at large. Absolutely. Many before us paved the way so that we could keep it going today. I hope so. Legacies are important and they're primarily coming in the way of the next generation.
2: Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about the start to the legacy that you're creating now? Um, We saw that you joined NAC about 10 years, a little under 10 years after you got your law degree. What did you do in that in-between time?
1: Well, actually, uh, that's what got me to connect with NAC in the first place, that uh, I had one other talent that really started it all. I was a pretty good softball player, uh, and, and the legal services program during the year I spent before law school there almost won the city championship. And so when I was finishing the first year of school, I got a call from the director asking me to come back there for that summer. He didn't mention work. He mentioned softball. He wanted me to come back and play softball. And when I, you know, came back to that part of Connecticut, this was a different place than I grew up. A little town called Willimantic. Uh, you know, I asked him. I said, "What is it that you have in mind? I need to. I'll be doing for work." And he said, "Well, we really haven't done much advocacy in the Medicare area, so why don't you spend the summer just exploring, seeing what's there?" You know, and so I spent that summer. Uh, and as part of the process, visited virtually every nursing home in the state of Connecticut and then visited with many of the home care companies as well to try to find out what are their problems that affect their patients. Uh, I, I left with the distinct impression that I didn't want anybody to go into a nursing home if they had could make home care available to them. Uh, as a result of that summer project, I wrote a grant that was funded to create an advocacy program focused uh, on Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, and during law school, we got this established. Uh, I then joined it after I finished with law school, where I spent nearly 10 years with it as well. And that's where I honed my litigation talents, uh, uh, as well as a variety of other tools, I think, to fit into advocacy. You know, looking at it not from I'm a litigator, but rather try to be a problem solver and work in lots of forums. So uh, I, I was a lobbyist, I was a policy planning person. I represented individuals, you know, with their with their problems. I did education of consumers as well as professionals, in addition to the to the litigation. And that's where I met, you know, the then head of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice. Uh, before he even had that job, a guy named Val Hallamanderas who worked for the Senate Aging Committee. And, you know, fast forward, you know, a few years time, I get a phone call from Val saying, could you come down? We wanna talk to you about a lawsuit. So that's what got me ultimately to NAC. So I spent 10 years litigating uh, Medicare issues, testifying before Congress, lobbying Congress, um, trying to do some reforms to the Medicare program. And, and in some respects, broadening my knowledge too, because you know, while we were dealing with benefit decisions, uh, healthcare is not all about whether Medicare agrees to pay for something. Sometimes it's whether Medicare is paying the right amount for something too, or if it's established the right standards for quality of care. So broadening it in terms of then what the advocacy could be. So no, I've I've had a, a deep footing into healthcare and Medicare and home healthcare well prior to coming to the national association. That's incredible. It sounds
2: like you brought a wealth of experience, and I absolutely relate with what you mentioned about. You know, it's not just about will they pay for it, will they authorize it, but can we create the outcome that the person needs based on the resource that are given into that authorization? So I love that. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about what NAC does in layman's terms? Because as we were talking about prior to starting recording, not everybody that listens to this podcast is really a healthcare expert. So something that you know I could explain to even a teenager or someone interested in getting into healthcare. What is NAC?
1: Well, I've tried to explain this to my grandchildren; they don't particularly care to listen to it. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, but but NAC is in in layman's terms a voice on behalf of providers of healthcare in the home, a voice in a variety of places centered around Washington D.C. Uh, much of healthcare at home comes by way of government programs like Medicare and Medicaid. And so that involves Congress, it involves regulatory agencies, it involves the courts, uh, but it also involves providers of care and their connection to consumers of services. So we really see ourselves as that leading voice expressing the interests of patients and providers relative to those healthcare programs, Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, and more, but not simply in terms of, you know, taking me back to my days of professor in calculus, telling them what they did wrong, but instead coming up with solutions as well. You know, know, one of the maturing things that happens uh, at least I believe I experienced was that it's easy to find things wrong. It's harder to find what the way to do it right is. So those solutions are, are very much key. And that's a lot of what we do. We don't just criticize, we help you know, correct and create even at times, uh, creating new opportunities for healthcare at home, creating new avenues to improving quality for care, removing barriers to access that might be there. Uh, and the barriers, you know, can be multiple. They could be just financial or they could be uh, geographic. It could be a diversity issue, racially related kinds of barriers and bias that may be there. So we're we're that voice, you know, on behalf of people who want care at home and people who are delivering care at home to try to create that correct policy, to, you know, to, to make it a better reformed approach to healthcare delivery services. I'll add one other element to it. We're a cheerleader. You know, we come in saying, if if we think what's right is care at home, yeah, we can fix it. But we're going to start cheering for why is health care at home a, a priority? Why is it sh- it should be the center for health care of certain services? You know, and, you know, obviously touting all the, the great benefits that come from health care at home. So, yeah, I, I am a cheerleader. No pom poms. No pyramids that I'll form with anybody else. But, uh, you know, it it is what we do. We we promote uh, the interests. Uh, We hopefully do it in a fair, logical and honest way. And I believe we do. Well, you said uh, you'd form no pyramids, but I hope you do with your grandkids.
0: I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you're able to do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, no, I I, I, all I know is I'm at the bottom of the pile of them when when they're all together. That's (laughs) somehow that's how it always seems to end up.
0: Nice, well, I figured you can uh, appreciate good dad humor right there since uh, I, the older I get, the more dad jokes I have there. But um, <laughs>
2: uh,
0: one thing I wanted to go, um, go back to is how you talk about you know providing the solutions. And I think for this particular episode especially, you're gonna get a lot of uh, post-acute listeners or viewers on our YouTube channel. And I think a lot of you are, that are out there, myself included, whose day job is you know, in the post-acute care world, we complain a lot. And so one thing I want uh, to show my respect to you, Bill, is that you realize your job is to not point out the problems but find the solutions. So I just want to encourage you guys as well, if you're not part of NAC or if you have frustrations, feel free to reach out to Bill or NAC um, you know, with a solution because a lot of these problems are not so easy to solve. So I just wanted to, to mention
1: that. Yeah, and I, I would add to it that most of the problems aren't solved by one individual with you know, their original ideas or or non-original ideas that they think are original. Uh, instead, you know, the best solutions come from a variety of inputs, a team approach to it, uh, and generally refinement takes place. And so people who are there actually doing the work. Are, are really the best source of what it takes to do it better, what it takes to do it right, what it takes to create a solution out of that. So, yeah, I, I, I encourage anybody listening to, you know, if they really want to contribute uh, to offer their insights, offer uh, their great ideas. Is the one thing I found about home care, you know, in the decades that I've been working on healthcare at home is that they, there is endless creativity that, Joins in with the incredible level of passion that they seem to have for what they do, and we talked about underdogs before. Healthcare at home has been an underdog for for many many years. Don't know if it's will be in the distant future, but you know it has been fighting you know the medical industrial complex. You know to kind of use a term that was used a little differently for the military industrial complex when I was back there in the '60s and '70s, uh, and. and They have found ways to solve so, so many problems. If you don't mind a a little bit of an anecdote, and that is solving the problem of the availability of personal protective equipment uh, during the beginnings of COVID-19. The home care providers did such incredible things like knock on doors of tattoo parlors and nail salons to see if anybody was there to open up and could share some masks and gloves because you couldn't get them otherwise. You know, or they would go to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know their own home and find an empty two liter soda bottle and cut it open to create a face mask because you couldn't access those as well. You know, those are just little examples of how this community of people in, the, in home care are, are just full of creativity to bring about solutions to where some other people just throw up their hands and say, I can't do this because I couldn't get PPE. Home care found a way.
2: That's so true. And the collaboration in home care, I think, is incredible. I've just seen people who and businesses that were competitors in the past coming together to share solutions so that we can be better and do better during the pandemic for the people that we serve, because we've seen keeping people at home is the safest right now. And we need to keep the hospital beds open. And we do that by working together, collaboration, and sometimes, like you mentioned. Even with industries that are not necessarily considered healthcare in the past, like a nail salon coming through for someone, that's an incredible story.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the, the reality is, and this is not just passion driven, but but the reality is, it's an easy area to advocate for and to be part of because you know how how, how really good it is, uh, and you know to, to get up every day and to work in that area where you know you're helping uh, people. You know that that's you couldn't be in a better place. I mean colleagues that I have that are lobbyists, you know, in other areas, you know, I don't think can say the same thing. And I, I won't pick out any of those areas. I don't want to alienate anybody there. But, you know, to, just to be able to be a voice for health care at home, so many positives attached to that.
2: That's so true. And talking about solutions, one of the biggest pieces of healthcare change that has happened during my lifetime is the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare. Were you and NAC involved in the creation of Obamacare in any
1: way? We had a lot of involvement with it, but it was in kind of two different ways. Uh, you know, most of health care at home is for individuals who are aged or with disabilities. And with Obamacare, they were trying to create uh, access to health care for people who didn't otherwise qualify for Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, and so on one end of it, What we were trying to do was preserve what we already had from programs like Medicare because the uh, advocacy efforts around creating Obamacare had to find billions upon billions of dollars. So one of the main things we did was reduce the amount of money they took from Medicare, including home care, to create Obamacare. Uh, And it was one of those very difficult situations because we supported the creation of access to health care for the millions of people who didn't have it. At the same time, we're saying, whoa, whoa, you you can't dismantle the Medicare home health benefit. And there was at one point, it passed the House of Representatives, 57 billion dollars in spending cuts for home health services over a 10 year period of time, which yeah. would clearly have a, a devastating impact on access to care. So we spent a lot of time reducing that amount of money or focusing in how it was taken away. We, For example, we came up with a solution that one way to address uh, the, the need for money was to go after a fraud that had been growing in, in particularly in South Florida, Overutilizing home health services with care that would meet outlier payments you know uh, care that wasn't happening anywhere else in the country it was as if every diabetic who couldn't self-inject insulin suddenly found themselves in miami so we created a solution which capped spending on outliers as a way of avoiding you know, kind of just arbitrary cuts on spending for home health services. So that was one angle that we were dealing with was to basically preserve you know, a benefit at the same time, there was support that we were able to get for Medicaid, home, and community based services, a variety of expansions and support for Medicaid, home, and community based services. So while Medicare was facing cuts, we got $13 billion of additional support for Medicaid, home, and community based services. So were we part uh, uh, of that effort? Uh, you know, again, this gets personal. You know, thank you for letting me be a bit personal on this. Uh, my, my son got married uh, the year that they were putting together, you know, the Affordable Care Act. And he asked me, when would it be of convenient for me to be away from work? And I told <laughs> and as we went through each month of 2009, I said, no, 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 no. And he said, how about December? And I said, if they're not done with it by then, they've already abandoned it. So do it in December. And lo and behold, on, on the you know day before his wedding and the days before, I found myself you know, on the phone with the White House, with congressional offices, with colleagues, you know, continuing to try to to deal with the issue. Now, it finally ended up, you know, in law in, in March of, of 2010, uh, but yeah, we, we were involved in it. And, and my son was too, uh, and it, it left him a memory that he'll never forget and reminds me of too often, so.
2: Did you at least get the full day for the wedding off or were you still making calls that morning?
1: I, I, I screwed up the, the, the rehearsal dinner royally. Oh, no. Yeah, royally screwed it up on that. <laughs> Whereas the wedding day, I was pretty good.
2: That's good. And, you know, some of those that you think are a screw up, they end up being the, the stories at family party.
1: Well, it, 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 you know, it's a story where they love to use it to pick on me. But I think, <laughs> I think one of the things that conveyed to both of my kids is that you, know, you have. There is a work-life balance, and you know, sometimes work is very, very important. Uh, you know, uh, but uh, at the same time, I learned something from there that sometimes it should be a life-work balance rather than a work-life balance. That's
2: very true, and I appreciate everything that you did to make sure that it was a successful implementation. I'm a strong believer that great movement forward in regulation and legislation for healthcare is critical but it's just as critical to have the implementation be in a way that's going to lead to the outcome that we want. And exactly what you said, that doesn't mean destabilizing another program. It means adding options, adding choice, being person-centered. So I did not know all of that happened behind the scenes. Um, so I want to personally thank you for everything that you did to make sure it was successful.
1: Yeah, and anybody who's thinking about getting involved in anything close to what, what, what I do and what you do, you know, uh, needs to put that implementation element into the mix because, you know, uh, an idea is not worth anything unless it's implemented. Uh, many, many ideas, you know, uh, are, are out there, but those who make it happen make the difference.
2: It's so true. We just had this discussion recently, I think Gavin may have been part of it, that there's a huge influx in funding for disability services in California. And the immediate thing when we heard that was, our work is not done as advocates, we now have to make sure that it's implemented
1: in the right way to help people. And and, uh, there's an old line in Washington, which is those battles that have been won in the halls of Congress are sometimes lost on the pages of the Federal Register. Federal Register meaning when they start implementing it with regulation. Yep, absolutely. And thanks for explaining that. By the way, we
2: gotta (laughs) check ourselves when we're using those terms that others may not get. I
1: I, I don't know. I give out copies of the Federal Register on Halloween, uh, and you know, and and because it's when the home health regulation normally comes out. You know, I don't know why we've had you know lower numbers of kids coming to our house, but (laughs) I, I don't think that's got anything to do with. I think the kids are just aging out.
2: I love it. Well, what you could do is wrap a full-size candy bar in the regulation, and then they have to get to the middle of it
1: to find it. Oh, something. I didn't tell you that part. We actually do that, you know.
2: <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Perfect. But, I'll have but, to but, start
1: doing I did have to convince the other party to the choice of candy that Almond Joys are not particularly liked by kids. You know, they may be an adult candy, but, you know, and, 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 and only adults seem to know what an Almond Joy actually is as a candy bar, so...
2: Well, I love it. So I guess I, I'm in the adult category, luckily. Um, but that that would start a battle in my house because I love coconut and my husband is not a fan. So we always have to get a variety pack.
1: Maybe Gavin can weigh in on this. What do you think, Gavin? What, we should, what should we have for candy bars in the future, in addition to the Federal Register?
0: Uh, well, I'm a big fan of 100 grand. Not sure if you guys know what that is. but uh,
1: uh, Yeah, I, I have seen it on the shelves and passed it by. Yeah, that's my, uh, my love for it. <laughs>
2: There's definitely going to be a target run after
1: this for candy. All right. Well, that's it. We'll do another podcast on on candy sometime.
2: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I don't know that we'll have the health outcome that we want from eating too much candy, but we'll go for
1: it. live a little. Sounds good. Sounds good.
2: So, Bill, back to it. What would you consider um, your biggest career accomplishment in advocacy, legislation, or regulatory change, or even case law? Since you've done litigation
1: that may have impacted health, you know I, I'm th- I'm thinking of sports a bit on this, and one thing that ends up with people getting to the Hall of Fame is longevity, even if they've had thirty, you know, thirty years of just middle of the road performance. The fact that they've had performance for that long, so uh, I, I, I probably would start with that, you know. But uh, you know, what brought me to to the National Association for Home Care to begin with uh, was a lawsuit against the Medicare program. Which we labeled as the attempted at dismantling of the Medicare Home Health Benefit in the mid to late 80s, something I then litigated for a number of years. And the end result of that was we rewrote all of the Medicare coverage standards that are still the standards in play today, you know, covering individuals uh, who were outside of coverage, you know, somebody who had chronic illness, somebody who had therapy needs to maintain function, people who had needs for home care aid services you know, and and a variety of other things. The benefit went from a few hundred thousand people a year getting services to three and a half million people getting Medicare home health services. And, you know, again, it wasn't the work of just me and me alone on that. Uh, Yes, I was the instigator through the lawsuit to get to that point. The solutions were written by a lot of other people. But to think that we were able to reverse the course of that you know, dismantling of the home health benefit and have it skyrocket, you know, to, to where it is today. Now, it wasn't an easy path even afterwards because we went up, we went down, we leveled out, we went up again finally until the level of care, you know, to get to the three and a half million that we have today receiving services in addition to those from the Medicare Advantage plan. So I think that fits into one of my high points in terms of the work that I did, because it involved litigation, it involved policy, it involved negotiation, and it involved creativity uh, to, to get there. Uh, and so I, I absolutely put that on the list, but then I juxtapose it with one other thing you know, that, that comes to mind, and that is a gentleman uh, from uh, North Dakota uh, in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, he <coughs> at the time had Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, He'd been receiving care at home and his insurance company, uh, a Blue Cross plan, had been paying for it and then just suddenly said, we're not going to do it anymore. Nursing services uh, to meet his needs on a ventilator, no muscle in his body working, only his forehead had a little bit of capability of wrinkling. uh, But he still communicated with a word board and had some electrodes connected to a computer as well. And so I filed a lawsuit on his behalf, Uh, AARP asked me to go in there and do that uh, on a pro bono basis and uh, spent uh, a number of uh, flights up to Bismarck, North Dakota to get him reaccessing care. Uh, a A high point to remember was we were going in for oral argument before the judge and brought his wife in to testify. And the judge looked at her and and looked at the name on the case and said, "Uh, are you the plaintiff here? Why? Because she had looked so haggard because she had spent months lying on the floor, sleeping next to his bed in case he had an emergency mucus plug that happens from being on a ventilator, needing deep suctioning to keep him alive at that point. Uh, And so at the end of the big lawsuit, the big class action lawsuit, these millions of people, are people like that gentleman from North Dakota, uh, you're gaining access to real life care. Uh, so I put the two together, you know, uh, and, and always when we look at an individual, we look to see, is there a systemic issue that we need to be addressed? But in the end, it goes back to the individual. Does it make a difference to those individuals? So a lot of the work I've done ends up being, you know, systemic policy oriented, but it goes back to those individuals. So. Uh, and, but those are a couple of highlights I can mention.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that uh story. Um, I think a lot of the work that NAC and you do um, people don't realize the patient you know impact, and so really bringing it down to the patient and their life uh, I think it was really important and it actually wasn't part of our prep um, and I'm really glad you brought it up
1: well you know, the 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 National Association for Home Care, NAC as we call it you know has a principle that they've adhered to from the beginning. It was a merger of several other organizations back in the early 80s, other trade associations. But prior to that, and then when it merged together, it held to this one principle. What's good for patients is good for providers of care to those patients. You know, and sometimes you don't think of that in business. You think of I need EBITDA, I need profit margins, you know, I need capital. Um, But how do you get there? What makes a successful healthcare business? You know, we have stood for the principle that what's good for the patient will create success for those businesses. And that's actually what brought me and others to NAC. And what brings members to NAC is because you can join those forces of patients and providers. Uh, Much of our advocacy is supported by... Uh, Other organizations that represent Medicare patients, Medicaid patients, individuals with disabilities and the like. We've gone to court together. We've gone to Congress together. We've written legislation together. And one would have to say we have a pretty successful business in home care today. You know, I mean, it is probably by most estimates 120 to 130 billion dollars a year caring for 12 million plus patients each year of all ages pediatric private duty nursing personal care services you know you name it delivered in the home setting high tech services as well you know and certainly becoming you know something which is in the mainstream if it is in the mainstream it's not becoming it's in the mainstream of care with, without a doubt so that, that, that combination of doing right by patients, does right by the business, I mean, there, there are decades of proof that that fits in there, which makes the job, I think, that we do, whether you're a caregiver or an advocate for the caregivers, a lot easier. Well said. so.
0: Now that we are wrapping up the episode, Bill, um, we've talked a lot about the work that you do um, and members of NAC are from all over, right? You you mentioned personal care agencies, home health, hospice, pretty much anybody that's delivering care in the home. If people want to learn more about NAC or follow NAC, um, how can they do so?
1: The easiest way is to go to our website. It's a very robust website. I think reasonably easy to navigate, whether you are a provider of healthcare or a consumer, or someone who just wants to you know, learn a little bit more about healthcare at home. And it's at the web address is knack, N-A-H-C.org. Uh, little anecdote on that is it is pronounced knack rather than knock. The board decided long ago they didn't want knock-knock jokes. So even if it sounds like with the H and it should be, knock it is really knack. So there's a lot that could be gained you know, by going into that website. Similarly, you know, there there are you, you know there are many home care companies. There are thousands upon thousands of home care companies across the country of all types, and just connecting in with with one of those. Or if you're in a hospital and looking at your home care options, the discharge planners, great place. So there's a wealth of places to go. Or home care. Uh, the good thing is with modern technology and Google, if you put home care into Google, you'll get the proper references. You won't get home repair. You know that's no that, that that's not what it is.
0: Awesome, Bill. And then uh, uh, briefly as well for you, if people want to follow uh, you, uh, are you active on Twitter, LinkedIn? How can folks kind of follow what you're up to?
1: You know, I, I'm somewhat active on LinkedIn as a recipient rather than as a. An instigator, Uh, you know, I I do have a Twitter account, but, you know, I I probably don't use it as much as I should. Uh, So the best way really to to follow me, uh, you know, is through our our website Uh, or somebody can drop me an email if they wish. I I do my best to respond quickly to those. They're my initials, W-A-D at nac.org, and so be glad to hear from anybody you know so it is a uh, you know it's an exciting time in healthcare at home because we're seeing it change uh, from a policy perspective a priority perspective you know we've got congress looking at major expansive supports of home and community-based services under Medicaid, in particular, we've got a, a president like many others before him, you know, who are very much uh, a, a big-time uh, supporter, uh, backer of, of home care services, and probably one of the reasons why we see politicians so often support home care, regardless of party, regardless of leaning left or right, is because they are having personal experiences, family members, or they themselves getting the services, so the high quality care they received tells them "Hmm, i'd like to see more of this you know for people uh so we've got one of those great issues in washington that crosses party lines we wish there were more of them uh, but we're happy to see that home care is one of them awesome bill well thank you
0: so much for making yourself available to us and our audience and i have emailed bill as you can imagine uh, a couple times and candidly um up until recently i didn't really know bill too well and he was very responsive. Uh, so just want to say again, Bill, thank you so much. He does keep his word with those emails. So uh, folks, Bill Dombey has been our guest. Bill, thanks again for joining the show.
1: Well, thank you, Gavin. And thank you also, April. Really enjoyed our time together. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health
0: Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and if you have, and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes, or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.